Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. This morning's scripture reading will be taken from John 3:16 through 21, and that's on page 940, the red Bible in front of you. John 3:16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God." Heathens beat their drums, the Jews chant out the words of the Psalms, Muslims uh, hear the cry to prayer, to prayer chanted in their cities, but Christians sing, Christians sing. Those are James Burton Kaufman's words, not mine, uh, but I really thought that they are appropriate uh, considering what it is that we come together to do and just helps to kind of uh, put in perspective the differences between the Christian practice and those of our religious friends in the world around us. Good morning, church. Glad to see you all today. I'm so glad that you're able to be with us here at the great church, Laverne Church of Christ. I want to greet our guests, of which I can look across the auditorium. Before I get in the preaching zone, in which I will no longer discern any of you from the others, I'll go ahead and say hi, and uh, thank you for being with us. Welcome. And I hope that you'll come back and be with us, uh, not just any time that you have convenient, but even when it's not convenient. We hope that you'll come back and be with us at all times and worship God with us. Uh, this is the place that you should be on Sunday mornings here with God's people, and we welcome you. Our series is The Son of God. Following our first series of this year, The Son of Man, we've been talking about the humanity and the deity of Christ. And uh, what we have been doing in this series so far is uh, dealing with a few very important questions back up there. We have first of all said, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God? That was a few weeks ago. We moved on to what is the evidence that this is true, and, and we explored that together. What we've been doing now for a couple of weeks is question number three. How do we deal with the objections of unbelievers? And we've talked about three different kinds of objections that folks in, in the world, irreligious people, unbelieving people, as well as those who are members of other religions in the world and what they might say in response to our saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And there are some 
that would respond, how dare you say there's more than one God? And what they're doing is they're responding to the fact that as Christians, we teach that there is one God who exists in the form of three distinct and separate persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches us that this is a truth about God. And yet the Bible affirms that these three are one. In fact, one God and only one God. We do not teach that there are three gods. There's one God who exists in the form of three persons. And we have talked about that, and I won't spend any more time on that today. But folks failing to understand that will say there can only be one God, and therefore Jesus can't be God, and therefore he can't be God's son, and therefore your claims about him as Messiah cannot be true. Well, as I've said, we have said no such thing. Last week we talked about the fact that our Jewish friends, that is Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, would make this kind of objection to our claims. And uh, today we're going to talk about our friends in the Muslim world. Now there are some, some things that we have in common with Muslims, just as there are some things that we have in common with Jews. We share some foundational stories, uh, Bible stories we might say, though the details different are, are different due to the sources. Now I don't have time to go into this today. I want to say the same thing that I said last week about the Jews. What I'm doing is giving you uh, some basics, giving you kind of the direction that you need to go if you want to study this subject more deeply. Anybody listening to any of these sermons last week and, and today especially uh, may come up, well, why didn't you speak about this? Why didn't you answer this objection? Why didn't you talk about this? Well, because I only have a certain amount of time. I promise you there's a whole lot more to this subject, and if you could see what hit the cutting floor in my office this week, you would understand. There is an awful lot more to say. But what I'm going to say, I hope, will focus on the main issues that we have. And I just want to say that Muhammad uh, was a merchant, and he traveled the, uh, the Arab world, the Middle East, the Mediterranean world, especially the land of Palestine and Israel, and he interacted a lot with Jews over the course of his early life. And they had an influence on him uh, because the, the Arabs before uh, this period of time were largely pagan. There were many of them who were Christians of a sort. And in addition to the influence of the Jews, there was an apostate Christian that I started to tell you the story of, but I don't have time, but who was a great influence over Muhammad in his youth. And what he learned from the Jews and from this apostate Christian formed the basis of his understanding of the biblical worldview. And when you read in the Quran, as well as the Hadith and other writings that are important to Muslims, you will recognize these stories. And the way that they are told, we know historically, come from certain sects of the Jews and of these apostate, that is, Christians that have fallen away from the truth and are not in teaching things that are consistent with the Word of God, we know where these stories came from. And so they find their way then into Muhammad's teachings. That's all I can say about that. Our Muslim friends affirm Jesus' Messiahship. This is going to be one of the most important things for you to let sink in today, to help you to maybe if you have an opportunity to converse with Muslims in your life in the future, you need to know that they affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, but they do not understand what that means. And it is our job to help them to understand that rightly. And, and though their theology depends upon the Bible, they like to quote the Bible in passages that they believe will support their position on this or that. But if there's anything in the Bible that disagrees with Muslim teaching, and stop the press for a moment, there are lots of things in the Bible that disagree with Muslim teaching. 
then in those places they will say, well, the Bible has been changed in that regard. Originally, it didn't say anything that disagrees with the Quran or the Hadid or Muhammad's teachings, but somebody changed that over the years. This is the second most important thing that I want you to let sink in. Two things. Muslims believe that Christ Jesus is the Messiah, but they need to understand what that means. If they will understand what that means, they will become Christians. Secondly, we need to remember that uh, they believe uh, that the Bible was originally uh, the Word of God and, and the, the product of prophecy, but they argue that it has been tampered with, changed over the years. And if we can make a case for the Bible having been uh, transferred to us generation, generation, generation over the course of time accurately, then, then that will prove the Messiahship of Christ. And of course, we would then hope that our Muslim friends would have an open mind and choose to accept Jesus as Lord. And that is ultimately our aim in dealing with Muslims. So we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things today in line with what I have already uh, told you about. First of all, Muslim, Muslim beliefs are dependent on the Bible. But because Muhammad's teachings contradict them, that is the Bible's teachings, they claim the Bible has been changed. And so we ask the question today, has the Bible been changed? And we all need to know the facts about this. You don't necessarily have to be a scholar on this subject, but I would say in the world we live in today, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus that wants to be fruitful in the way that you interact with those in, in life and try to communicate the gospel to them effectively and so on, you need to at least know the basic facts. Uh, Wikipedia says this. Uh, Wikipedia is not the best source in the world, but it's definitely a popular source. It can give you, you know, kind of just a cross-section of a lot of different subjects. Here's what it says. The New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature. Stop and process that sentence. Stop and process that sentence. The New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature, with over 5,880 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts cataloged, and, and that's ongoing as more are being found, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Coptic, Nubian and Armenian. The dates of these manuscripts, listen now, the dates of these manuscripts range from 125 AD approximately in the lifetime of those who were personally taught and baptized by the Apostle John himself. And those oldest fragments of New Testament uh, documents are of the Gospel of John itself, the Gospel of the four that the most boldly and clearly and plainly proclaims the deity of Christ. Let it sink in. And so these manuscripts range from that date, the P52, Papyrus 52, oldest copy of John fragment, to the introduction of the printing press in Germany in the 15th century. Let me summarize what that means. What that means is there is a trail of evidence to what the text of the New Testament originally said that dates back to the lives of those who knew the apostles themselves and goes all the way through history until the inventing of the printing press 
at which point time and time we have the Bible printed that we use today. The, the point of that is that there has never been a time, listen please, there has never been a time, there is no such thing as there ever having been a time in which the Bible was lost to culture. It's never occurred. There's never been a corner of the world in which somebody had, you know, the, the words of the Bible and nobody else had them so that they could say, well, let's go ahead and alter this to make it say what we want it to say. That's never happened. It's never been possible for that to happen because the early Christians in the first century beginning started copying these letters, copying the Gospels, even copying the Old Testament books and, and spreading them throughout the world. And so from that time, there has always been a witness to the text. It is simply a lie to say that the text has at some point in time been changed in history. The evidence does not support that contention. And I hope that you understand that very, very clearly. No Christian who knows the facts makes any attempt to deny that there are textual variants between the various uh, families of Bible manuscripts, nor do we need to defend, nor do we need to, to defend the, the legitimacy of the claims that Scripture makes. Now, before I go any farther, I th also thought about going through this at length, but we don't have time. But I will tell you this, that if you do much interaction with Muslims and have communication with them, uh, they're, they're going to tell you that the Quran is superior to the Bible because the Quran has never been changed and there are no variant readings and, and there's never been any, uh, you know, variance between any two copies of the Quran even to a punctuation or pronunciation dot. And that is what they will say, which is also a lie. And in fact, if you will search the Internet today, you will see that there have been archaeological discoveries that have found ancient Qurans, the wording of which differs from the ten different accepted readings of the Quran today. So, so there have been more divergent readings in past history that were attempted to be destroyed and burned and cover up, but some of them were in jars somewhere hidden somebody didn't find, and guess what? We found them. Yeah? And today... There are 10 different variant readings of the Quran used by Muslims across the world with the approval of the whole Muslim community. So do not let a Muslim tell you that this Quran has somehow been protected from any kind of variant readings and then make some kind of claim against the Bible as if we're silly for believing it because there are textual variants. Does that make sense? You can shake your head no if you want to. I don't have any time to explain anymore anyway. But I would like to know if you get it. All right, so listen. You need to know the basics of textual criticism. That is the field of scholarly study of making sure that we have the text that was, as it was originally given to us by the apostles and prophets. Uh, there is a mission and there are methods of scholars to establish the critical text of the Old and New Testaments. Critical text, by, by that I mean simply this. That scholars spend their lifetimes studying the manuscript evidence we have for both Old and New Testaments. I'm going to say more about the Old Testament later in the sermon. Right now I want to focus on the New Testament specifically, it being the most important, uh, you know, teaching from Jesus himself, all right? And so the, the mission is to, to go through the manuscript families, the evidence, the trail of evidence that goes all the way back to the second century A.D., in these various documents, and to trace back where a scribal error was, was made, 
that then was copied by subsequent generations of scribes. And this is the great privilege that we have with God's providence having given us so many thousands of manuscripts and us being able to date them accurately, which we scientifically can. It enables us to trace back and see, oh, that's where the scribe missed a line. This is where the scribe misspelled a word. This is where a comment that a scribe made in the margin was accidentally brought into the text by a subsequent scribe. You can trace those errors back all the way through the course of time, and you can thus reconstruct the original text to the point of 99.99% accuracy. Cool, right? Works for me. Works for me. And so the methods that scholars use are to trace these back and to develop these family trees, you might say, of manuscripts. And that science, man, is not a new thing. It has been being done for a long time. And if you care to research that, I can point you to books, uh, to websites, to scholars that you need to look into, and you can see that this is stuff is being taken very seriously. And the case that is made for our Bibles having the original text that the apostles wrote in the first century is more than strong. It is an ironclad case that can be made, and we need to understand that. But we also need to know what the textual variants are, what the textual variants are. Now, what some folks would like you to believe is that there are alternate stories out there, alternate versions of the gospel, alternate teachings about what Christian life ought to look like, etc., and that in the ancient world, those were all competing and they were equally legitimate, equal valid, and that somebody along the line said, I don't like these others, so I'm going to use my authority to tyrannically destroy all these others, and I'm going to give the world this one that's all about money and power. And of course, that's what evil suspicion today would like to say about how the process occurred. But that's not actually the case at all. All, listen, all scribal, all variant readings of New Testament documents are misspelled words, repeated words, missing words, a missing line, a repeated line, or a section that is put in a place that it probably didn't originally belong, that belonged in a different place in that book or that letter when it was originally written. Now, what that means is that there is no different case, no alternate or competing case for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are no teachings of the Christian religion that somehow vanished or went went away. There are no additional teachings that add new doctrine to the Christian faith that somehow were able to find their way in. That's not the case at all. It's simply people's, you know, mistakes, just honest mistakes that were made and then passed on. And so the case that people make about uh, the variant readings of different New Testament uh, pieces of literature is wildly overwhelming. And it's because most people are ignorant of the truth that they're able to be misguided and deceived when people uh, stretch the truth about them. Uh, And listen to this. No Christian doctrine depends on any variant reading. 99% of the New Testament does not have variant readings. It's only 1% of the text in which you will find those mistakes that are variant readings. But there is no New Testament uh, doctrine at all, no New Testament teaching at all that depends upon any variant reading. If you've got, uh, say, the variant reading in Mark chapter 16, Mark 16, 15, and 16 is part of that disputed variant reading where we have Mark's account of the Great Commission, right? Go into the world and, and, uh, and teach the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. 
That's part of a disputed variant reading. It's questioned by some scholars whether the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark were in the original or not. You see how we don't hide anything in Christianity? I'm not afraid of that. I believe it belongs where it is in Mark's text, but, but even if it was slipped in, a part of some other Christian teaching that a scribe added to the end of it that Mark didn't actually write, even if Mark didn't actually write those words, is the doctrine of baptism destroyed because there is debate about the last 12 verses of Mark? Well, of course not. There's no dispute about Matthew 28, 18 through 20, no variant reading there. There's no variation on Acts 2, 37 through 39, no variant reading there. There's nothing that is uh, to contend against uh, Acts uh, um, uh, 22, verse 16. That's there. What about Romans 6, uh, the first four or five verses? Nope, that's ironclad. The point I'm making is that God has not so providentially overseen the transmission of the Word that no mistakes were possible on the part of the human copyist generation after generation. But what God has done is providentially overseen that process so that we have the trail of evidence that enables us in any generation to reconstruct the original and to know with 99.9% certainty in every passage exactly how it was originally rendered. And what is in question with that 0.1% is not the nature of the teaching, but just simply how the original worded that teaching. And that is uh, the whole substance of the uh, of, of the debates and the controversy about variant readings of the New Testament especially. So the Muslim belief that Jesus is the Messiah is, if studied through to its reasonable conclusion, exposes Muslim teachings as false and points them to the Bible as the truth. All right? I love the fact that I, I, I'll just go ahead and give credit to the Holy Spirit because I do believe it was the Holy Spirit that saw to it providentially that when, when Muhammad was done with his teachings, the Quran was full of allusions to Jesus as the Messiah. It's just one of those little uh, fishing hooks <laughs> that the Holy Spirit has put even in that false prophecy in the hope that the folks who had been deceived by it would, would, would latch on to that, take the bait, so to speak, uh, take the hook, and, and be reeled in. Because if someone will, reading the Quran, if a Muslim reads in a Muslim country, reads the Quran, and sees that Isa, they call Jesus Isa, that he is the Messiah, and they say, well, I want to understand what that means. If they will begin to study what Messiah means with an open mind, guess where they end up? They end up in Christ because Messiah means some very specific things, all right? Now, this comes from a Muslim source, and so I just want to prove to you that the Muslims do agree that Jesus is the Messiah. This comes from a Muslim source, not from a Christian source. Isa is Jesus' proper name in the Quran, used 30 times. Ibn Maryam, which means son of Mary, is used 35 times and always with respect. He is called a sign or a revelation two or three times in the Quran. And this is the same word for a verse in the Quran. Of course, Muslims accept Jesus as a nabi, that is a prophet, and believe his prophethood began at birth. Seven times he's described as ru, their word for spirit, and a spirit from God. Kalima, word, is a very meaningful title. It's their translation of logos, word. Uh, sort of so on. You can see the references there. But most notably, 11 times he is referred to as Al-Masih, which is Arabic for Messiah. All of this in the Medinan context. And you can see the references there to the Quran readings. Continuing then, same uh, Muslim source, comes from the Zwimmer Center for Muslim Studies. In spite of Orthodox Sunni Islamic teaching that prophets are sinless, listen to this, 
in spite of the orthodox, that is Sunni Islamic teaching, that prophets are sinless, the Quran suggests that they sinned, that is the prophets sinned and needed forgiveness. Noah specifically, Abraham mentioned specifically, Moses mentioned specifically that they sinned and needed forgiveness from God, all of which we would agree with. That was true about each one of them. Uh, but the name, uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, the same is true. I don't want to miss that. The same is true of Muhammad, in which the Quran states that he was imperfect in sin and needed forgiveness from God. In contrast, the Quran calls Jesus' birth the gift of a holy child. And because of this, in spite of the traditional Orthodox teachings, many Muslims will affirm that Jesus never sinned. They even get that far. Again, it's amazing the way that the Holy Spirit, you know, fishes for men, right? And puts those little fishing hooks in the text. Because if someone is, is, is reading and thinking about Islamic teaching with an open mind, and they hear that the Muhammad, who's supposedly the last and the greatest of the prophets, he sinned and needed forgiveness, but Jesus never sinned? How, how then can you say that Muhammad is the last and great, great prophet? How can he be greater than Jesus if he sinned and Jesus did not? And I just pray that more will open their minds to consider the logic of that, the reason of that. Pardon me. <coughs> okay, well, that comes from Zwimmer Center for Muslim Studies. But let's talk about what Messiah actually means, all right? The word Messiah is simply an anglicized form of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed, as if with oil, the anointing oil poured on someone's head. And that symbolic, that, that anointing is symbolic of God's grace and favor upon the individual that, that was anointed. And the word occurs dozens of times in the Old Testament in reference to prophets, to priests, and to kings of Israel. So in that sense, listen to me now, in that sense there were many messiahs. Because everyone upon whose head the anointing oil was poured was an anointed one, that is, a Messiah. And so the, the Old Testament is full of that word referring to these kinds of people. So in that sense, there were many Messiahs. In that sense, we might even say that every Christian is a Messiah or an anointed one based on the teaching of 1 John 2, verse 27. Uh, however, it is clear that the Old Testament foretold of one Messiah, the anointed one who would fulfill all God's desires and intent that remained unfulfilled due to the inability of the many mere mortals who were anointed with the holy oil over the long history of ancient Israel. In other words, um, Abraham couldn't be the anointed one because he sinned. He therefore could not fulfill all of God's desires and his intent for his people. He could not be the savior. He could not be the king. Moses the great lawgiver, sinned. He could not therefore be the Messiah. He could not lay down his life to save the people because he himself was rendered imperfect and in need of salvation because of his sins. The same thing is true for all of the prophets. Elijah, Elisha, Samuel preceding them, all of the prophets that, that wrote the various books of the Old Testament, the same was true. They all failed. All of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, all failed, beginning with Aaron and all of his descendants. Every one of them sinned and fell short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23, and therefore none of them fulfilled God's expectations for his people. None of them were able to accomplish God's intent, and therefore they could not be 
the Messiah. Because the prophecies we read in the Old Testament tell of one who will not sin, one who would lay down his life to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He had to be spotless and sinless. The Old Testament most certainly prophesies of a single Messiah who would be God's Son, God in the flesh, God being a man, God with us, as Isaiah prophesied, who would lay down his life and take it up again, becoming the king over the universe. And so we want to read together from the second psalm. And the second psalm is a messianic psalm. And in fact, it is the fountainhead of all of the prophecies about the Messiah throughout the books of the Psalms. And so I want us to read this together. Page 479, if you're following along in a pew Bible, listen to Psalm chapter 2. 1 through 12 is the whole of the psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. You you see how there's a singular anointed here? Well, there were many who were anointed, but there's there's a singular anointed one. Saying, verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. In other words, let's rebel against God and against his anointed one. Right? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. In spite of their desire not to follow God and his anointed one, the Messiah, his son Jesus, God says this, verse 6, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, that is Jerusalem. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, this Messiah, this king, who would represent God, fulfill all of his desires, accomplish his intent for Israel, fulfill the law and everything. He's going to be the Lord of the whole earth. And anybody who will not have him as Lord, they'll be broken by his reign. Those who accept his reign will be blessed by it. Verse 10, here's the application, the urging to all the nations, to every man, woman, and child alive. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. I read this hoping that most of us are familiar with Psalm number 2, but I read this just in case you're not so that all of us can hear the kind of language that is very clearly used in the Messianic prophets, uh, various Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. They are not vague. They are very clear. They're very clear about who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. And in fact, there are more than 300 of these specific prophecies in the Old Testament. And that even is only the hem of the garment in studying what the Old Testament has to say about Christ. And so the case for Christ from the Bible is very, very clear. And so... um, Muslims agree that he's the Messiah, but they fail to understand what that means. And so let's, let's further clarify what it means. 
When the people of God sing Psalm 2, this comes from the ESV Study Bible, they remind themselves how God made David and his descendants to be kings in order to enable them to fulfill the very purpose for which Abraham was called, and that was to bring blessings to all nations, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Thus it can be called a royal psalm. The pious Israelite realizes his hope of blessings now irrevocably is tied to the house of David. And so he prays that God will keep the king pure at a time when the Gentile kingdoms that are part of the Davidic empire seek to throw off Israelite rule. This psalm recalls the promises made to the Davidic king at his coronation and notes that, that the Gentiles will find lasting joy only as subjects of this king. With its prospect of a worldwide rule for the house of David, the psalm also looks to the future when the Davidic Messiah will indeed accomplish this. In fact, the scope of such an accomplishment calls for a ruler who is more than a mere man. I think that's a great summary of what we read in Psalm chapter 2. It really helps to get the point across of what the Bible teaches about the Messiah. Well, uh, the Jews, all the Jews, at least from the time of David forward, knew that they were looking for a single great anointed one, the true son of Abraham and David and the son of God, the father himself, who would save them from their sins and establish and bring about the expansion of the kingdom of heaven so full and wide that it would eventually draw all the nations under his banner to live eternally under his righteous rule. They certainly did not understand how he would or, or how long it would take for him to accomplish it all, but they knew they were looking for a truly unique man who would suffer and somehow overcome death and live and reign forever. And the Old Testament teaches this clearly from its beginning until its end. And so I told you I'd come back to the Old Testament here uh, because ultimately, though the New Testament is uh, the most important thing for us to establish its legitimacy, its authenticity, and its integrity, but the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old. And the Messianic prophecies, all 300 plus of them, as well as everything else that the Old Testament says about Jesus, is extremely important for making the rock-solid case that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we need to understand whether or not we have a legitimate, authentic Old Testament as well. I want you to understand how the Old Testament came to us. It, it began, of course, with Moses. Moses was the first writer or collector of the Old Testament books, and that begins at about 1450 B.C. That's not the beginning of the Bible story. That's the beginning of the Bible being written, all right? So about 1450 B.C., Moses writes the Torah. He either wrote or collected the book of Job into his writings, and then, of course, the prophets that proceeded from, uh, from Moses wrote the rest of the Old Testament over the course of about a 1,000 years. And so 400 B.C. approximately, Malachi is written the end of the canonical Old Testament period of time as far as writing is concerned. Well, we know that the Septuagint, the LXX, uh, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we know that it was already written and complete beginning at about 250 B.C. And so we know for sure that all 39 books of the Old Testament predate the birth of Christ. And what that means is that all 300-plus Messianic prophecies were written centuries before Jesus was born. And therefore, it really, it really is not, not rational for someone to make a case against what the Bible teaches Messiah means. The case is just too strong, brothers and sisters. Of course, well, our Old Testaments, though, are based upon the Masoretic Hebrew text. 
And part of the problem with folks in the past couple of centuries wanting to reject our Old Testaments and our Bibles today was the fact that they knew that the Masoretic text is drawn from documents that date at the oldest fragments to the 800s A.D. That is approximately 800 years after the life of Christ. And the best of them, Codex Leningradus, I think is the name of it in Latin, but it dates to the 11th century, to the 1000s A.D. So the most complete Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament was 1,000 years younger than Jesus. And so people would say, well, you can't possibly prove that the text you have in the Bible is, is the original. Well, then beginning in 1946... Lasting about 10 years, um, archaeologists uncovered hundreds of scrolls in the, Quran, the, the remains of the Qumran community in the wilderness of the land of Israel. And of those hundreds of Dead Sea Scrolls, there are portions or complete copies of every single part of the Hebrew Bible. And they date to as old as the 200s B.C., you know what the real notable fact about what the Dead Sea Scrolls proves is? We've got 200 B.C. now for certain Old Testament documents, both Hebrew and Greek. We compare them to the Masoretic text of the 1000s A.D. Guess what? The text didn't change because it hasn't been changed. Listen, I'm telling you, there is no evidence that the Bible's text has ever been significantly changed in any way. And anyone who makes an accusation that the Bible's text has at any point in time been changed is doing so without a single fact to support that contention. They simply don't like something that the Bible says, and the easiest way for them to brush it off and reject it is to say, oh, well, somebody must have changed that sometime in the past. But rational people that are truth-seeking people, not folks that simply want to support whatever it is that they already believe, but people that want to weigh the evidence that God's Spirit has given us to consider and come to a realization of what the truth actually is, will seek the trail of evidence in support of whatever religious belief that they are taking in mind. Now, I'll tell you what, as Christians, we are not one bit afraid of any kind of investigation or inquiry into the basis of our faith because the truth is on our side. There is no religion in the world other than Christianity that has the kind of scientific factual proof to back it up. And I'm telling you that is true. Don't accept it just because I say it. Investigate for yourself and see whether or not what I'm saying is true. If there are any Muslims that ever hear this sermon, I want to say to my Muslim friends, I respect your zeal for, for God. I really do. But just like the Jews that reject Jesus, it is a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Those are the words of Paul in Romans 10. I beg you to really seriously investigate the basis for the claims that you have been taught because I trust that if you will do so with an open mind, it will lead you to Jesus and to your salvation. And so, clarifying our disagreements we've talked about today, the Bible has not been changed. And therefore, Jesus is Lord. And Muhammad, let me just say it, he ain't even a prophet. Nor can he be. There is still, by the way, only one God. And he is 
three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is the truth. The Bible does effectively expose Muslim teachings as false, and it points to the message of the Bible, the message of Christ as the truth. And so I want to ask you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to do your best to learn these two main emphases of this sermon. Go back, get online, listen to it again and again until these two main emphases that I've talked about today become clear to you and develop at least some proficiency into be able to, being able to talk about these things with Muslims if you're given the opportunity because we don't hate them. We want to be friends to our Muslim uh, friends and neighbors. We want to help them to see that Jesus is Lord so that they can be saved because there is no salvation in false prophets. There is none. We're not being an enemy of anyone by telling them the truth. We're simply trying to be their friends. So do your best to learn these two main emphases so that you can refute the mistaken Muslim claims about the transmission of the Bible and so affirm the full meaning of the Messiahship of Jesus and the loving hope that some of them would be saved. Remember this passage we looked at last week? Peter's words, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly conduct, concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is my dear son in whom I am delighted. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word that is the Bible as an altogether reliable thing. And you do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. It's a poetic way of saying, study the Bible and it will open your eyes. It will enlighten your mind. It will fill your life with truth knowledge, guidance, direction, and hope like nothing else can. He summarizes, no prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In summary, God's providence did not see fit to so protect the transmission of the biblical text that scribes could make no mistakes, textual variants do exist. His providence did, however, preserve for us thousands of manuscripts enabling us to identify and correct our mistakes. But no textual variant significantly changes the meaning of any context in the Bible. Providence has protected the transmission of the message and the meaning of the Bible perfectly. And so we can affirm that together today. Forward that slide, please. My clicker has <coughs> abandoned me. Yes, please. We learn from this that providence regards spellings and word order and other minor issues like these to be relatively unimportant. God doesn't major in minors. The truth of the, of the message is the only thing that ultimately matters. So read whatever Bible version you want to read with a clean conscience. I've listed seven there. I adore so You can ask me about them afterwards. Forward the slide again, please. We learn, uh, forward it again, please. There we go. Since the text of the Bible we have today has been proven to be trustworthy, even after thousands of years of transmission, its teachings about Jesus stand as authentic. So believe them or not, 
The text, however, is authentic, and the case stands on its own merits. Our mission as Jesus followers is to proclaim the truth of his unique sonship to God the Father as the one and only God-man to the whole world, including Muslims, and there is salvation in no one else. Next slide, please. And so, brothers and sisters, we've made the case, and I'm through defending the gospel against objections. There's a lot more that could be said. I appreciate your patience. We're going to conclude this series next week, Lord willing, by looking at that great majestic text we've been reading in our scripture reading every week, John 3, 16 through 21. I just want to say this morning, if you're outside of Christ and you know that you're in sin, you have a Savior in Jesus, and he's the only one. If you're willing to put your trust in him, make confession of your faith, turn from your sins to, to begin living life following him, today you can be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll be raised to walk in newness of life, to be able to walk with the Lord as his person on into the glories of eternity in this morning. If you're a baptized believer that needs our prayers, the front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.